when we realize that God knows our thoughts and knows our hearts, that is a powerful vehicle for spiritual change. They let, him da let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now verse five, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So we're told there that Jesus saw their faith. What did Jesus see? Did Jesus see the working out of their faith? Like James chapter five, I'm sorry, James chapter two, verse 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, where, where James says to us, you know, show me your faith by your words, I'll show you my faith by how it works out, by the working out of faith, because a faith that doesn't work out in your life, a faith that doesn't evidence in your life can't be a faith that saves anybody. Those are the words of James. So is Jesus seeing when he says he saw their faith, is Jesus seeing the working of their faith, the working out of their faith? Or is Jesus seeing something else? I think the answer is both. I mean, clearly Jesus sees the working out of their faith. Everybody in the room sees the working out of their faith. Everybody else in the room sees that these people are so bold. Remember last week we talked about that audacious faith that sees your, your back is against the wall and your only hope is Jesus and you ask the unaskable. They have this bold and audacious, audacious faith, audacious, audacious faith in which there's no, we got to get him to Jesus. If we get him to Jesus, Jesus can heal him. And so they've got this faith that's so bold that they're bold enough to make a hole in someone's roof. And so certainly Jesus and all the others see this working out of their faith. But Jesus sees more than just the working out of their faith because the working out of your faith and the faith itself are not the same thing. The working out of your faith is the evidence of it. It's the, the fruit of it. It's not the faith itself. Jesus sees the working out of their faith, but he also sees something else. He sees the faith itself. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. In your notes here, in your handout, you see some other instances in which we're told quite frequently that Jesus sees or he perceives faith in other people. For example, Chapter 10 and verse 52, go your way, your faith has made you well. Matthew 8 and verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and says, I, I tell you, no one else in Israel have I found such faith as this. Matthew 9 verse 22, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Matthew 15 verse 28, woman, your, great is your faith. So we see instances of Jesus seeing the faith of people. And Jesus sees the faith of these people here. He sees their faith. And as a result of that, he speaks to the paralytic and says, son, your sins are forgiven. So, so the first main central point that we see in this passage is something that everyone in the room can see. There's two main points of the passage and nobody needs a biblical expositor any student of the Bible can clearly see these two points. Number one, Jesus sees the heart of men. Jesus sees the thoughts of men. Jesus sees the hearts of men. We're going to see that come up again with the hearts of the Pharisees. But Jesus sees the hearts of people. He knows the hearts of people and he sees something in here, this faith that he sees. And when he sees their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. So this would have been, I think, quite an unexpected result, quite an unexpected response from Jesus. Here they are going to all this effort to get this man to Jesus. And why are they trying to get him to Jesus? 
because his legs don't work. And they know that Jesus can heal his legs. That is the most obvious thing in the text. They want to get him to Jesus so that Jesus will heal him. And instead, Jesus' response is, son, your sins are forgiven. So would they have been disappointed? What sort of look would have come over their faces if you were looking up through that hole in the roof and they're all peering down, just waiting for their friend to stand up and walk? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Would their faces have just been downcast? Would they have looked at each other and said, huh? Did he say what I thought he said? What sort of response would, would have come from them? Because, you know, people then are just like people today in the sense that for us, we have this inbred, sort of ingrained notion that physical well-being takes top priority. Don't, don't we have that just, I mean, that's just natural. That's like the, the knee-jerk reaction that physical well-being always takes priority. We might not say it in those words, but that's how we always feel. Just listen to your prayers. Just listen to corporate prayers in the church. Just listen to prayer requests. Just listen to those things, and you will realize that physical needs always seem to take a priority. And it's the same way for people in Jesus' day. People in Jesus' day weren't more spiritual than people today. They, too, were people for whom physical needs took priority. Just think of Job. Remember the story of Job? Take your hedge away from him, God. Let me touch his body and he'll he'll curse you. Because people then thought, just like people think today, let me touch his body and he'll curse you. Because physical well-being is of such importance to us, and rightly so. What good is are so many of the other blessings of this earthly life if we don't have physical health? What good are the blessings of, let's say, for example, I don't know, you're an art collector and you really appreciate fine art and you have accumulated for yourself some of the finest art in the particular type of art that you like. What good is all that if your eyes have gone dim and you can't see it any longer or you can't enjoy it because your health is so poor? So, Rightly so. I mean, physical health is important. And the scriptures teach us that God is concerned for our physical health. Jesus in Matthew 25 will say this this commendation that these who gave a cup of cold water in my name or James chapter 2, that same chapter in James in his epistle when he says, what good is it if somebody comes among you and they have a physical need, a bodily need, and you're able to meet it, but you don't, but you sort of send them away with these well wishes and a prayer, you know, God bless you, my son, we'll be thinking about you. James says, what good is that? When there was a bodily need that you didn't meet. So the scriptures teach us that there is a importance that God places on this, this, on this physical healing. This is why Jesus goes around healing as he does. But there is an infinitely greater importance in the economy of God. There's an infinitely greater importance placed upon the greatest need of all, which is the need for the forgiveness of sins. That's something that's plain in the text as well. The greatest need of all is our need for the forgiveness of sins. And this is what makes this miracle such a remarkable miracle. Because this is the only healing miracle in which Jesus specifically and explicitly connects the two together. Connects together the healing and your greatest need of all, which is the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus sees their faith 
And he says these words to the paralytic son. You know that word son? Jesus is expressing there a certain reality about his relationship to this man. He's expressing something about their relationship as he calls him son. So he sees the faith of the friends and he turns to the paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, what is all that about? Have you ever wondered? Did Jesus forgive his sins based upon his friend's faith? Well, clearly here, that's not what Jesus is doing. Because in the scriptures, we always see a connection. There's a plain and pure connection that is always true and always valid in the scriptures. And that's this. The forgiveness of sins is only extended to those who are justified. The Bible knows nothing about the forgiveness of sins that's extended to those who are not right with God, who are not justified. God doesn't forgive the sins of those who aren't his children. So when Jesus forgives the man's sins, he is necessarily also saying that this man is justified. Now, the scriptures also teach us that no one in scripture is justified apart from faith. Faith is the vehicle through which justification comes to us. Ephesians 1 and verse 7. This connects to us, this connects for us justification and the forgiveness of sins. In his blood, we have the forgiveness of sins, the redemption, the forgiveness in his blood. That connects together for us redemption and forgiveness, justification and forgiveness. Then, just a few verses later, chapter 2, verse 8, connects together for us justification and faith. Justification only comes by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So we are only forgiven if we are justified. We are only justified if we have faith. We only have faith. We are only justified if we repent. Acts 3 verse 19. And we only repent if we're convicted of sin. Now that sounds like that I just made a long string of connections that weren't in the text, doesn't it? But every single connection is absolutely biblically solid. Every connection there, I'm not pulling anything out of the air. The scriptures connect all those things for us very clearly. Forgiveness is for those who are justified. Justification is for those who have faith. Faith comes to those who have repented. Repentance, a gift from God, is something that comes through the conviction of sin. So what I'm getting at is something that's not explicit in the text, but something that's clear. What Jesus sees as this man is being lowered into the room is one big bag of a storm. This is is a storm because in this man's heart is turmoil. He is in turmoil, clearly over his physical condition. He's a cripple. He can do nothing. He can't care for himself. He can't provide for himself. So clearly his life is in turmoil over his legs that don't work. But there's something else that Jesus clearly sees. He clearly sees a turmoil of the soul. He clearly sees that this man is convicted, not just of the state of his physical life, with his legs that don't work. But Jesus clearly sees that this man is wrestling with his own sin and that he has this faith that's been given to him and he's wrestling with this repentance and this forgiveness of sin. Jesus sees that and he declares to him, son, your sins are forgiven. 
the greatest need of all, I grant to you now, your sins are now forgiven. So as he's lowered down and the proclamation is made of his forgiveness of sins, of course, everyone in the room is going to hear this and there's going to be a shockwave that travels through the room. But the Jewish person, they were accustomed to hearing priests proclaim forgiveness of sin. This, this wouldn't have been something totally new to their ears. They would have heard the forgiveness of sin proclaimed by the priest because the priest had the authority to proclaim that according to your repentance and according to your sacrifice, God promises forgiveness. That's what Leviticus tells us, Leviticus 19 and other places. If the sacrifice is proper and the heart is proper, then the priest has the authority to say, based on this, I proclaim that God will forgive you. But Jesus isn't proclaiming forgiveness. Jesus is conferring forgiveness. Jesus isn't declaring forgiveness. Jesus is creating forgiveness. How is Jesus creating forgiveness? In the same way that he creates forgiveness for all who have gone before this paralytic. By faith in the promise of God that my sins will be taken away by Messiah. So Jesus, even though he hasn't gone to the cross yet, is saying, I will pay. I will pay this. I will become this sin. And by your faith, you are forgiven of this sin. So he's not declaring what the priest could declare. Jesus is conferring forgiveness upon him because he has the authority. Matthew 28, verse 18, 19, all authority has been given to him. All authority in heaven and on earth. John 5 and verse 22, the father judges no one but has given judgment to the son. This is a clear claim of divinity on the part of Jesus Christ. This is what makes this one of the greatest miracles because it again connects together our need, our greatest need, and this miracle of healing in itself. So now we continue in the passage, verse 6. And now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. So all the opposition against, against Jesus all the opposition against Jesus has come from truth. The, the man with the unclean spirit in the synagogue, you are the Holy One of God. You're, you've come to destroy us. The opposition here from the Pharisees, no one, can, no one can forgive sins but God. What, of course, hasn't crossed their mind is that God is in the room with them. That's, that's what has not crossed their mind. And also hasn't crossed anybody else's mind either. And so... They're correct to say it's blasphemy to say that someone other than God can forgive sins because only the one who sinned against can forgive those sins. And only God can forgive the sins committed against him. So this, this would be blasphemy if he weren't God. So they're sitting here questioning in their hearts, disbelieving. Jesus, of course, knows this because Jesus knows the hearts of men. And so Jesus is preaching and he's teaching to those who are actively disbelieving him. You know, all of us who stand and proclaim God's word, all of us have, we've had occasion, if, you, if you're one who's taught before or uh, stood before God's people and opened God's word before, you, you know what it's like to stand before people who are disbelieving what you say. 
That just sort of goes along with it. And sometimes you, you can proclaim God's word and you can just sense, you can just know that there's there are people who are listening to you. That are, they're not listening to learn or to grow or to receive blessing. Instead, they're listening in order to gain ammunition, to hear where you're going to falter, to hear where you're going to trip up. And they're just listening for that. Jesus is teaching and preaching to those who are doing just that. But the difference is he knows their hearts. He knows their very thoughts. He sees into their hearts and he sees how they are completely disbelieving. Verse uh, six again, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And verse eight, and immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts. Verse nine, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. So Jesus's question to them is, which would be easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. So Jesus here, he's not saying that to forgive sins is easier than to heal. What he's saying is one is really easy to verify. One claim would be really easy to quantify, to qualify, and that's the claim of healing. Jesus is subjecting himself to the same standard that Deuteronomy subjects the prophets to. A false prophet is one whose words do not come to pass. Jesus is subjecting himself to that same standard. And he's saying, well, the easier one is to say your sins are forgiven because there's no clarification of that. Who's to know? Who's to know if the sins really are forgiven or not? But if I say get up and walk, everybody in the room is going to know whether that is something that came true or not. So, Jesus sees into their hearts. He peers directly into their hearts, knowing their thoughts, knowing their disbelieving thoughts. Again, he is the one who sees people's thoughts, sees into men's hearts. As we see so often in the scriptures, how Jesus will know what they're thinking, or he'll know how they're doubting him here. or He'll know how the disciples are, are talking among themselves about which one is greatest, or he'll, he'll know that the disciples are talking about how they forgot to bring the bread. He knows these things. We're told in John chapter two, that's the reason he didn't entrust himself to people because he knew their hearts. But here's something else that we're told in the book of Revelation, chapter two and verse 23. And the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Jesus is still the one who searches minds and hearts. Jesus is still the one who knows our thoughts and knows our hearts. And here's why that's important to see. Because when we realize that God knows our thoughts and knows our hearts, that is a powerful vehicle for spiritual change. When the lost person realizes that God sees their heart and knows their thoughts, that can be oftentimes the first human trigger for conversion. Look with me at the words of Albert Martin as he says it this way. The first step to a sinner's conversion is when he takes seriously that God sees his heart. And by first step there, Martin means the first human step. The first human step to conversion oftentimes is when a person realizes, I can't hide. My heart is open. God sees my thoughts. He knows my thoughts. He knows my heart. I cannot hide. That oftentimes is the first impetus, the first push into that person's conversion from a human standpoint speaking. But then also for the one who is converted, look at Martin's words as he goes on. And 
This can be the foundation of all godliness when we take seriously that God sees our hearts. So for the believer, the converted, the regenerate believer who begins to take seriously the reality that God sees our hearts, God knows our thoughts, that can be the impetus for true spiritual growth. Because when we sort of hold on to this false narrative that we can hide from God, that we have the deepest parts of our soul, the deepest parts of our heart and our thoughts really are not something that God has access to. When we do away with that, when we finally get serious and realize God sees everything, that can be a powerful spiritual motivator, not only for godliness in the believer, but even for conversion in the unbeliever. Look with me at Hebrews chapter four and verse 12. Now we all know the theme of the book of Hebrews is that there's this group of believers who have failed to progress to spiritual maturity. And the writer is concerned for their souls because they have been not just lazy, they've been absolutely delinquent in their spiritual growth. And so we know the the warnings that come through the book of Hebrews to those how they must progress on to spiritual maturity. But we often don't think of chapter 4 verse 12 as one of those warnings. But Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 fits right along with all those stern warnings For the believers who have not progressed to spiritual maturity, when chapter 4 verse 12 says this, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and here it is, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The writer's purpose here is to say, you must progress on to godliness because God sees your heart. Because God knows your thoughts. Nothing is hidden from Him. So you cannot just remain in the the spiritual condition of juvenile faith, of infant faith. Because God sees it all. And becoming serious about that, getting serious about the fact that God sees our hearts and knows our thoughts, that is a powerful pushing mechanism for the believer to move on to maturity. So, We see here once again how Jesus sees their hearts. Now, verse 7, why does this man speak like this? Is what they're saying. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8, and immediately perceiving in his spirit that they questioned this within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So here we come across this title, Son of Man. 14 more times in Mark's gospel, we're going to come across this title, Son of Man. It was by far, by far, Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself, Son of Man. Some 83 or four times, Jesus refers to himself as a Son of Man. Now, I don't want to go through all the uh, drawing out of what that title means, the Son of Man, mainly because we spent some time in a couple other messages doing that. And so if you want to go back and sort of review those, It was the Good Friday message. Remember that Good Friday service we had? The Good Friday message of this past year. You can find it online. It's called, What Further Witnesses Do We Need? We spent a lot of time in that going through what Son of Man is. Also in that message, you remember from some time back from Numbers 21 and John 3, Everyone Who Looks Will Live. In that message, we also spent a good deal of time talking about what the Son of Man means. So for those reasons, I won't go back through all of that, but I do want to just draw from that the main point the main point of this title, Son of Man. Jesus has two natures. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. And so the default is for us to think that when Jesus is referring to His divinity, 
he's referring to son of God. Son of God means Jesus is talking about the fact that he's God. Son of man means he's talking about the fact that he's also human. And so son of man is sort of this humble way of characterizing himself. I'm just a son of man. That's the default. And that's the complete opposite of what Jesus means. The complete opposite of what he's saying when he calls himself son of man. Son of man comes from Daniel 7 and 8. In which Jesus is saying, just like the son of man there is sent from the ancient of days and returns to the ancient of days. Jesus is referring not to his humanity. Jesus is referring specifically to his messianic deity. So as we come again and again across this title, Son of Man, we realize here, when Jesus uses that title, he's speaking about something specifically related to his deity. We can even see it in the context here. He says, just so you know, that the Son of Man has, what? Authority to forgive sins on earth. So he's speaking of his divinity, of his messianic divinity. 